it's very easy for us then to, to just use the economic freedom indices and show, yes, we do have these very, very large government sectors, high tax burdens, lots of government spending. But the rest of the index reveals that Denmark, Norway, Sweden and Finland are extremely capitalist societies. People live longer lives. Uh, people are, on average, better educated in countries with high economic freedom. The one thing that doesn't really clearly correlate with economic freedom is income inequality. Economic freedom is the fundamental right to work, produce, consume, trade and invest. This freedom has been closely linked to higher levels of human well-being. Yet across the world, there are signs of economic freedom being in decline, from higher taxes to more regulatory impediments on people's lives. This concerning situation is raising more fundamental questions as well about how we measure economic freedom and the impact it has on our lives. Welcome back to the IA Podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the IA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, what's the value of economic freedom? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Christian Bjornskov. He's a professor in the Economics and Business Department at Aarhus University in Denmark, as well as a member of the IEA's Board of Trustees. Welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thanks. So the reason why uh, we thought we'd be discussing economic freedom this week is following the, the sad news of the passing of James Gonchi. Now, he's the co-creator of something called the Fraser Institute Economic Freedom of the World Report, uh, which is, in fact, partly co-published each year with the IEA. Um, before we get into some of James's work, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about his life um, and the kind of contribution he made to economic freedom. Right. Jim Gordon was, was born in 1940 in rural Kansas and went to a small Christian university there. Uh, but he earned his PhD at the University of Washington, where he, among other people, worked with uh, Douglas North, who would go on to win the Nobel Prize. So he mm. got a fantastic education at the University of Washington. Um, he uh, was hired by Florida State University in 1969, straight out of, of his PhD. Um, turned out to be a good hire. The next year, the first bit of his PhD was published in the American, uh, the American Economic Review, which is one mm. of the absolute top journals in all of the social sciences. Um, in the 1970s, early 1980s, Jim really contributed to, to the discussion of labor market discrimination, particularly in the US, where he was one of the first ones to very accurately just, uh, document just how much blacks were discriminated against. Um, but in the 1980s, he more turned his attention to the effects of economic policy. He <clears throat> is invited to participate in a number of conferences organized by Michael Walker, who co-founded the Fraser Institute in Vancouver. And these conferences deal with what we now call economic freedom, what you defined uh, in the introduction. Um, they invite people like like North is there one time, Gary Becker is there one time, Milton and Rose Friedman were there. Uh, if you see the guest list, it's a list of luminaries in the 1980s economics world. Uh, and the story is that he came back from the third of these conferences uh, and went downstairs and knocked on his research assistant's door. 
His research assistant was Bob Lawson, who's now professor at SMU in Dallas, Texas. And he asked Bob, so, Bob, what are you going to do the next half year? And Bob was a bit confused and said, I, I don't really know. And Jim told me, okay, we're going to do an economic freedom index. Friedman had, had essentially come to the conclusion that we need to measure these things in order to get proper answers uh, to discussions that people would have had for 50 years of what is the role of the state in, in society uh, and how, how burdensome are regulations really. So the, I think at the heart of this kind of challenge of trying to develop uh, a, a comprehension of the impact of economic freedom, there's a, there's a methodological issue of trying to, I suppose, judge different countries on the their amount of economic freedom they have. Um, and I think there's an interesting story where James Gosch almost turned down an invite to a conference about economic freedom measurement because he just thought it was such a ridiculous idea to even start there. I mean, it does strike me that, that there's almost like a knowledge problem in measuring economic freedom. It's like once you start trying to create a number around something, you're probably losing a lot of essential information that might not necessarily be quant quantifiable. So I suppose the question becomes then, how, how did they go about trying to quantify the unquantifiable, something that um, as was previously seen as, I suppose, quite abstract and generalist rather than something that could be you know, put in a, a ranking and, and indexed in, in this way? Well, they started by, by, by insisting that this has to be quantified. It can't be great. It can't be perfect. But it has to be good enough to, to, to be able to say something relatively precise about the impact of economic freedom. Uh, that, that was Friedman who insisted on that. And Jim Gordon and Bob Lawson sat down uh, with Walter Block to look at what can we actually get from secondary sources, the World Bank. Uh, the World Economic Forum, the IMF, uh, and so on. Uh, and they came up with a list of different indicators that, that would proxy and kind of capture different elements of economic freedom. So from the almost the very beginning, there have been a number of indices in the index that capture how, how well the legal system protects private property rights. Now, of course, subjective expert judgments uh, but we now know that they're pretty good because we we can do these things in different ways we end up with basically the same result uh, they can get tax tax burdens so average or marginal tax rates they're from the very beginning there were pretty good data on government spending and government investments and over the years um, the index has grown to include three different types of uh, regulations in the labor market and credit markets and in product markets. <clears throat> it's grown to, of course, include both tariffs, but also non-tariff and regulatory barriers to trade. And it's grown to include uh, what's now called sound money, which is uh, the inflation rate, the money growth rate, and uh, a couple of other aspects of, of so how much can we actually trust and predict money growth and price growth? Um, so I, I think it's an interesting point at the start where they decided uh, to use fewer measures for ones that could be applicable to more countries. Yeah. So they could include as many as 100 countries in the original index. I mean, something like over 160 countries today. 
um, and in using a whole bunch of multifaceted uh, different metrics. I think you're right. You know, there's uh, the, the World Bank's doing business index where they go around surveying people all over the world about the difficulty of doing business in different countries. Then they they make their own index, and then the Economic Freedom Index can use that as one yeah. of its factors in uh, being able to rank different countries. Exactly. So, so they all always used secondary sources, essentially because uh, Jim and Bob from the very beginning insisted that everyone should be able to recreate what they did. So it, it was completely transparent how they did things and what they did. Uh, and, and everyone's from the get go been able to then recalculate uh, the index uh, but without aspects that they might have thought were problematic. So, so we now know that uh, the government spending part, or the size of government part of the index is quite a separate thing from the rest of which captures regulations and legal quality and so on. So, so because everything is transparent, everything is from tra secondary sources, it's very, very easy just then to split those two elements apart and see whether they have different uh, consequences. On that point about size of government, I suppose, from a Danish perspective, the, the government uh, enables a whole bunch of economic freedom, but when it comes to the, the size of government or size of state spending is very high. So therefore, it it's, might not always be the, necessarily the best indicator of economic freedom. So you can kind of split those things out like, like that sort of a question. Is that what you're getting at? Exactly. But it, it's, it's been a great thing to have as a Scandinavian because there are there are still these discussions in the US, but in particular, about how socialism can work. And people like Bernie Sanders and point to Denmark and Sweden and say, look, these are socialist countries. They work well. Uh, it's very easy for us then to, to just use the economic freedom indices and show, yes, we do have these very, very large government sectors, high tax burdens, lots of government spending. But the rest of the index reveals that Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland are extremely capitalist societies. They're certainly not socialist. And before uh, Jim Gwartney came up with this index, it, it was just an argument. We, we did, had no way of assessing just how socialist or capitalist these countries are. We can now very, very clearly document it. So I, I think perhaps stepping up for one moment, what the, the general finding from the research around the, the index has been now once you have a ranking of countries, you can then um, look at how they compare on other factors. And it just it seems like pretty much almost every kind of outcome you might look forward to um, increases with economic freedom. So things like are people wealthier? Uh, do they live longer? Uh, are they um, healthier in other ways? Is government less corrupt? Is, is there less violent, less unemployment, uh, lower income households better off? It, it, there's been a whole bunch of supplementary research that has used yeah. the economic freedom index to show the the kind of i suppose largely positive impact of economic freedom yeah that, that certainly has been a lot um i, I counted up uh, this weekend uh, if you use google scholar you can find almost seven thousand articles books uh think tank analyzes government reports that use the economic freedom index in one or the other way um, because it makes it transparent. And as you say, almost all of these things go together with economic freedom. So, so economic freedom se seems to make countries richer. Uh, people live longer lives. 
people are in on average better educated in countries with high economic freedom. The, the one thing that doesn't really clearly correlate with economic freedom is income inequality. So there's re not really a clear pattern. Uh, so, so increasing economic freedom probably won't affect income inequality in the long run. Uh, but all sorts of other things that we value for both ideological and personal reasons are positively associated with how economically free your country is. What, what do you think that is? Um, what do you think the link is between economic freedom and all these positive outcomes? What's, what's the, the causal explanation here? Well, I, I give you three examples. Uh, the first one is the, probably the best documented. That's the association between legal quality and, and, economic free, uh, and, and growth or pro productivity. So imagine that you have a million pounds. You can invest it in either Botswana or, or Angola. And both are high-growth countries. Both look good. Uh, your choice depends on not just the returns to your investment, but also how safe that investment is. One of the things a good and politically independent legal system does is that it allows you to, to protect your investment in a different way that you, you would be able to do it in like Russia, for example, or indeed in Angola. Botswana has a great legal system. Angola's is almost entirely politically dependent. So, so we now know that's one of the reasons why people not only invest more in countries with more economic freedom, better protection of private property rights, better protection of contracts, uh, but people also invest differently than invest on a longer time horizon because they know that even though it takes like five or 10 years for the full return to investment to materialize, it is protected by the legal system. Um, another thing that we know is that when you have a very large government sector, high taxes, uh, high government spending and a, a government that does a lot, you're going to get fewer entrepreneurs. You're simply going to get less entrepreneur activity, both because there are large parts of the economy where you can't compete with the government. So you have uh, municipal companies in Denmark and Sweden who are not subject to a budget constraint. So if, if they end up competing with private firms, they can easily run a deficit and know that the municipality eventually will cover that deficit. So that there are parts of the economy that you can't compete with. And as an entrepreneur, if you should succeed with your small new business, you're going to pay very high taxes in a country like Denmark or Sweden or France for that matter. So all those things actually deter entrepreneurial activity. It's one of the reasons why economically free countries have more entrepreneurs and therefore also a lot more sort of low level innovation. Uh, the last thing is regulation. Uh, it's it's a, actually a very important discussion when we talk about uh, environmental quality, because we would like to have cleaner production. 
พราะว่าจะ cleaner transport what regulations very often do is that they they tie you to using one particular technology that means that all the other technologies that might do the job for you are just not available to you anymore so so too tight regulations are actually going to deter innovation in many many ways um, and new research both from me and from a, a few of our colleagues have shown that uh, countries that regulate their economies more uh, tend actually to pollute more so uh, an essential question always raised in the economic freedom debate is the link between economic freedom and all those positive kind of economic outcomes you've just described and political freedom and whether yeah. or not it, democracy is in some way intrinsically connected to people's ability to freely trade and that there was this whole idea that maybe countries become more economically free first uh, and then subsequently become uh, more politically free so maybe some of the east asian economies south korea and taiwan being examples thereof i wonder what the broader research shows on that front particularly now with i suppose uh, for a lot of people china complicating this question a country that became somewhat more economically free at least to some extent but did, didn't follow that up with more political freedom well it, it's a great question um Gwartney himself actually went to russia in the 1990s uh he was invited over to help uh give ideas to how could they reform their policy and one of the the hopes that jim had Now, one of the hopes that Milton Friedman had was that more economic freedom would help a transition towards democracy. So, so we know that that is in general the case. Uh, essentially, we have no examples of countries that become economically unfree but keep being a democracy. So basically, once you you get policies that substantially restrict people's economic freedom. You're almost always going to end up as a dictatorship. There's one person counter example. That's Israel, but Israel ended up liberalizing their economy instead of becoming an autocracy. Hmm. So we also know that one of the uh, necessary conditions in order to have a democracy is to have at least some degree of press freedom, and. We know now that economic freedom actually helps press freedom. So, you so have press holding companies to account for poor behavior and and activities. Exactly, um, and it ensures companies, I suppose, perform better. So it's not just about state regulation; it's also about, I suppose, civil society oversight of private industry um, that might be lacking in a undemocratic country. I mean, I think it's it's quite an intriguing linkage there that the way you're putting it forward. It seems to me. At the very least, that when you start moving to a situation where you start taking away people's economic freedom, be it limiting their ability to transact um, freely between each other and trade, which is essentially what economic freedom is all about, and, and the enablers around that to with property rights, um, you start moving power from, I suppose, kind of decentralized individuals to the state, um, yeah. and once you start making political decisions about the economy. Um, it usually leads to kind of more of a centralization of power and more incentive, I suppose, then to move towards a more authoritarian system. Because once you start controlling the economy, 
um, there's more returns to political engagement, political involvement. And this is actually where I, I kind of worry we're, we've moved to a large extent, even in somewhere like the UK, that is, relatively speaking, considered quite high in the economic freedom ratings. There is this increasing obsession with state direction of the economy, with industrial policy or um, regional uh, policy to try to deal with um, different levels of economic prosperity across different areas. And more and more, I suppose, <laughs> economic control is going to, towards the state. Now, I don't think there's a big threat here to, to Britain as a democracy per se, although it's questionable to what extent that state power is exercised in a democratic way as opposed to by arm's length regulators and others. It seems to me that that relationship in terms of economic freedom is, is on the decline um, and we're having more political involvement, in some ways out of democratic necessity because some of it's quite populist. Yeah, I, I think it happens both in the UK, in the US, and at the EU level, um, mm. that, that there is this a sense that politicians will have to direct the development of the economy for reasons of environmental performance or whatever. Um, but the big problem there, and, and Gwartney and Lawson certainly knew that and contributed to the discussion, uh, was that once you, you start down that road, uh, you're going to end up with a lot of rent-seeking. So, so we've seen that in Scotland, for example. So the SNP governments the last 16 years have been more keen on regulating and, and controlling the economy than Westminster. And, and you now have a number of scandals where, uh, where outright rent-seeking has made public projects in Scotland extremely expensive. Um, that's that same problem happens in a lot of other countries. You can talk to almost any Italian who will give you an example of, of how uh, regulation actually helps particular firms lobby the government. Uh, many yes. firms actually like regulation because tight regulations are a way of keeping competitors out of the market. Yeah, I think we see that in all sorts of different sectors in, in the UK as well. Perhaps finance being one of the, the biggest examples here where the sector has become extremely heavily regulated uh, to the point where it is genuinely very hard uh, for, for new competitors to enter the sector. And they effectively, as much as they need to innovate on their product and their, their customer service, they have to spend just as much, if not more time, um, dealing with the regulators and trying to get regulatory permission. Same with the tech sector. Up until relatively recently, um, you could innovate uh, without requiring permission in advance. Whilst these days the biggest tech companies are becoming um, kind of shrewd regulatory political operators. They have to persuade um, politicians and, and the regulatory state that they should be allowed to do what, what they want to do. So it kind of shifts the focus. It makes every company basically becomes a regulatory um, company. You know, they, they all have to do their own kind of rent seeking. They don't have another choice. Otherwise, um, they'll fail as a business. Exactly. Jim Gwartney's uh, good friend, Jim uh, Gordon Tollock, uh, once said that the problem is that once you go down that road, firms don't do one thing, they do two things. They produce goods and they produce lobbying and they use resources for both things. Mm. I mean, uh, I think there's a phrase I quite like, subs subsidy entrepreneurs. You, know, you, yeah. can, you can be a successful entrepreneur as a providing products to consumers or you can be a successful entrepreneur seeking some kind of state benefit for your action. 
Um, let's just stepping back to, I suppose, maybe some of the, the critics of the idea yeah. of economic freedom. So, so you spoke about earlier links with inequality, um, often, often that point is made. But I think there's also points made about, I suppose, non-material facts, something like happiness. Um, is, is economic freedom kind of something that can be linked to people being happier? Or are people in economic free societies, you know, you're, you're left with the capacity to set your own goals about life and um, achieve something for yourself and make something for yourself. But does that actually leave people, I suppose, happier and more satisfied? Or is it kind of like a rat race, um, you know, comp economic competition uh, that drives everyone to um, some kind of depressive state? Oh, the, the interesting thing is that, that uh, overall economic freedom is positively associated with happiness or subjective well-being. Uh, people are more satisfied in countries with more economic freedom. Um, interestingly, we have a new study coming up that actually shows that uh, economic freedom affects women's well-being exactly in, to the same amount as men's well-being. So it, 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 it doesn't discriminate any gender. Um, the discussion is actually what element it is, and it seems as if in poorer countries uh, regulations are what's driving the results so less regulated middle income and poor countries are happier in richer countries it might be more about the, the quality of the legal system so uh, the, the other opponents i suppose to the broader sense of you know, economic freedom equals kind of generally speaking, less regulation um, and perhaps uh, less public services or some kind of less spending or lower taxes as the kind of general perspective on it. That's say, well, don't we need some kinds of regulations that are dealing with market failures, uh, that ensure um, some kind of accountability for industries when um, they do some kind of behaviour that is socially suboptimal? Um, and that what you don't, what you need, generally speaking, is a not less regulation, but better regulation uh, yeah. would be the kind of rhetoric around it. I'm wondering how you think about that kind of a balance. That is the potential. If you if you just put together an index and say less regulation is is good, um, is that really the right approach as opposed to what we need to do is improve the quality of regulation? It, it is one of the common critiques against the index, in particular the regulation, that it 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 captures how much regulation we have but not the contents or the, or the quality. That, that is a good point. Gwartney himself acknowledged that point. But uh, he was born out of a public choice tradition where, where you, you don't just say, well, we have market failures, we need government regulation. Uh, what, what you need to do is you need to acknowledge that you might have market failures, you would like good government regulations, but we need to judge the market failures against the government regulation that we actually get from actual governments. We, we can't assess, well, what, do we, what happens if we don't do anything versus some ideal uh, idea, idea of what government should be able to do. Uh, so Gordon actually wrote a textbook in the late 1970s that was the first textbook economics that included these public choice arguments that we need to look at actual markets and actual governments. And once we do that, uh, it's not certain that the contents of regulation are going to be good, even though the intention might be good. 
yeah, it seems to me almost a balancing factor here where people just presume that we should intervene to create some kind of regulation to solve some apparent social issue without, I suppose, considering the second order effects of the potential unintended consequences and the costs Im imposed by the regulation. And then also the question, which is, which is often not very well assessed in, in policymaking, is, you know, what kind of, what will be the actual positive impact here? Will this have the, the intended outcome at all? Or will it, the, the negative outcome substantially um, outweigh any positives? Um, I suppose I'm interested in kind of concluding remarks. So acknowledge at the start of this podcast, and, and I think the index has probably reflected this as well, perhaps Hong Kong being a, a, a top of the class example here where economic freedom has declined uh, in recent years. I wonder what you think about what can be done to, I suppose, remake the case for economic freedom, or are we kind of in an era where things will go down for a bit while longer um, until people realise the, the folly of over-regulation and, and, and overdoing it when it comes to the size of the state and the impact that has? Or is there something we can, we can do in the short run to try to reverse? Um, the in the short trend? run, we could do two things. First of all, we can use the, these numbers. From the Fraser Index, uh, the Heritage Foundation does a similar index uh, they're very similar, both of them. You can use either one. Uh, in the US, it's been quite effective because the, the calls for having a more socialist state, as in Scandinavia, have been debunked. Uh, so, so the second people know just a bit about these indices, they, they can realize that these calls for more socialism and with reference to Scandinavia are just wrong. Uh, the other thing... I've always found very helpful in public debate is that if someone says, oh, government should do this, you might agree government should do this, but you should always ask, so tell me which politician you would like to be in charge of that. And very often people cannot name a single politician that they trust enough that they would place him or her in charge of, of major government intervention. Well, Professor Christian Bjornskov, it's been a fascinating discussion about, the, I suppose, the background to this concept of measuring economic freedom, the, the big role that James Gontry played in that process, and then all the, the subsequent research and thinking in the field. Um, if you are enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. If you'd like to learn more about the IEA and the work we do, just visit iea.org.uk.